This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Seal and I'm joined today by the spectators Katie Balls and Lord Stuart Jackson, who is a member of the House of Lords and also regional chairman of the Conservative Democratic Organisation. The topic of today's discussion is going to be candidate selections. Um, Katie, there's been a lot of focus recently uh, this week on um, what's happening in the Conservative Party. Can you tell us more? Yes, we're in the early stages of the Tories selecting a lot of their candidates. They're a bit behind Labour on this. I think Labour have selected over half the parliamentary candidates for the next election. The Tories have, with the Boundary Commission, spent uh, some time obviously working out which MPs go where. Um, You've had a few bun fights. Cyril Bravman, of course, eventually won the Battle of Waterloo. But that has taken some time. And we're now on to um, the candidates of tomorrow. Now, the candidates list, I think, is is pretty much done. And it comes down to three different stages or three different passes you get once you get through that process. So if you are seen as a top candidate by cchq i think it's what you're called is comprehensive is also i would call it the vip pass in the sense you're allowed to try and go for any seat cchq still have to say we're putting you on the list but technically you can apply for any seat and see where you go from there then you have key which is the middle stage which tends to be more marginal seats um, but marginal seats where uh, there is a fighting chance, so of course it slightly depends what the general polling looks like. And then uh, you have development. I think it's fair to say no candidate really want to be in development, um, <laughs> because that basically means, particularly given the current political climate, you're heading towards a no-hoper seat. And depending on what badge you have from going through the entire process, which these candidates have gone through, which is involved interviews, tests, um, obviously CVs, that determines which type of seats you can potentially go up for. Once you're selected on a list, um, you then have a few stages more to go and it's ultimately a decision of the local association. Of course, what we are heading to is a slightly evergreen theme, which is CCHQ, so central control, and it's also a theme of the Labour selections, which I'm sure we'll get to. But central office versus what uh, the local association will want. So while the local association have the final say, the candidates they get to pick from is something that central office gets to decide. And this time around, CCHQ are putting out these new seats in batches. So in every batch, there are some which are marginal. There are a handful of what you might call safe seats. So the definition of a Tory safe seat is, I think, uh, becoming narrower um, as the months go by. Um, And we're heading up to the next rounds for interviews next week for some of these. Yeah, and Stuart, I mean, you've been involved with the party for decades. I mean, how does this election route this time differ from what it's been previously? I think it is ratcheting up in terms of central control and I think that's pretty evident from the evidence around the country and there's a commensurate lack of um, excitement uh, and focus from people who hitherto would have been really keen to be Tory candidates. I've heard some cases where seats we won in 2010 and still hold you're getting less than 10 candidates for that nomination. Remember, this is a historic issue. Uh, It began really seriously with the Hague reforms of 1998 because the party was horrified by the Martin Bell, Neil Hamilton situation where Tatton Conservatives chose Neil Hamilton again in the 97 election with huge, poor publicity for an already 
uh, enfeebled Conservative Party. Uh, and obviously Martin Bell swept in and won as an independent. And Hagen, the then shadow cabinet, took the view they never wanted to be in that situation again by being outsmarted by an association. So they brought these very centralising rules in. And in the period between then and now, central office has used every method possible to restrict the choice of local conservative associations um, by using, as you say, graded um, uh, passes from the Parliamentary Assessment Board from what you call comprehensive or unrestricted, i.e. the beautiful people who we want to get selected and people who might have odd or awkward or, dare I say it, proper conservative views who are shuffled off to unwinnable seats. Uh, and, And also this idea of being able to drip out decent seats in small numbers, allows central office really to go to town on pushing their favoured candidates, on saying, oh, their CV's very strong, you'd be a fool to miss this candidate, etc., etc. It's It's not really what I would call full party democracy. And you think that this is a reaction partly to some of the substandard com- uh, candidates selected last time? Well, it's two things, really. It's a reaction to some of the you know egregious... Uh, selections in the run-up to both the 2017 and 2019 uh, general elections, and that they shall remain nameless, but we know who those people are. (laughs) Uh, Some of them are now sitting as independents rather than Conservative MPs. Um, But it's also this drive to um, what one might call it a drive for political correctness, woke. One hears anecdotal stories of women coming before the selection uh, committees at central office and saying yes i work in a food bank and they say fantastic at my local church and they say well really at your local church are you a christian evangelist nut nutcase we're not sure you're the right person to be a conservative mp and this is a party once called the uh, church of england uh, uh, the conservative party was the church of england prayer so i think there is a drive for a more social still more socially liberal more economically liberal folk and people who are you know one of us our kind of people and that was the genius of Osborne before the 2010 election was able to put in place some really uh, very much favoured candidates who he wanted to see in parliament and in ministerial posts. Yeah I think both Labour and the Tories are grappling with a similar issue here because uh, she's completely right to point out um, the issues of candidates in both 2017 and 2019 for both parties um, you can think about Jared Amara on the Labour side at uh, 2017. That was uh, a momentum-backed candidate um, back when Jeremy Corbyn was leader. You can think about Claudia Webb um, mentioning two Labour candidates who ended up having brushes with the law, actually a bit more than a brush. Um, and then on the Tory side, um, there's also been several issues. Um, again, just look at the list that no longer have the whip and you get a strong sense of it. Um, and also bear in mind, both 2017 and 2019 were snap elections, so there isn't that much time to do comprehensive candidate selection so part of it is uh, both those elections I think showed the risk of picking candidates really quickly they also showed what happened when the polls ended up being quite different um, from when the election was first called if you think about 2017, Theresa May was on course for a landslide victory. So lots of the seats uh, where they had uh, Labour candidates that perhaps of hindsight some figures in the Labour Party were less fond of, those were no-hoper seats uh, because the polls were suggesting Jeremy Corbyn was leading the party to a massive defeat. In 2019, 
the Tories were hoping to do well, but some of those seats, particularly in Red Wall, um, some of those seats, particularly in the Red Wall, were seen as out of reach, and they got some by just a handful of votes. And they tend to there tends to be um, a correlation, I think, between the candidates in seats where you don't expect to win and some of the issues or the problems that um, whips former ministers will cite in terms of um, what's turned out to be a pretty unruly intake um, in terms of governing. Yes, Boris Johnson won a majority of 80. I know people slightly realise because we've said it so many times on this podcast, but it's just not proved to be a big majority in the way in the past these have done. Um, so I think that all adds up to tightly controlling it. I think Labour... And I, I raised about it for the Storm Troopers cover uh, a few months ago, but they are tightly controlling in a way which is uh, further Labour has previously gone. But in a way, they're catching up with the Tories on it. I also think that this isn't completely new in the sense I'm struggling, and perhaps Stuart will remember for me, but. If you think even to Theresa May and candidate selection, there are always the stories about central office and number 10 trying to get in their own candidates. It happens every time. I think what is going to be interesting is we saw the anger from local councillors when it came to the local elections recently. I don't think you can say it's just people who are saying, oh, why did you get rid of Boris Johnson? I think it's much more widespread, the grassroots anger about the past year for the Tory party about uh, the sense they've squandered uh, a large majority um, when it comes to just things such as the tax burden. There's lots of things which means there's unrest with central office. And therefore, is it the case that we will see a larger uprising potentially against what looks like the central office candidate? I think we'll start to get a flavour of that in the next few weeks. Well, it has. it's certainly been the case, Katie, in not that long ago that some associations have had the cojones to push back. Uh, when the Wintertons retired from their next-door neighbour seats, Congleton and Macclesfield, it was alleged that Matt Hancock was prevailed upon to go for them. And uh, those two seats in Cheshire said, no, thank you, we don't want him. And uh, they won out. They had a big tussle with central office. And they ended with two very uh, different candidates. And Matt Hancock ended up in West Suffolk. So it can be done, but it, it can be quite difficult. I mean, there was a case in the last election, I think, uh, with Aldershot, who wanted a particular uh, very well-known former MEP, and that was just made impossible for them. So, you know, you're going to see a lot of battles. And, and of course, the other complication is the, the chicken run of MPs, um, who rather quaintly say how wonderful they they thought their red wall northern marginal seat is and they feel that they have to stand back to pursue other challenges in life uh brackets uh, a much safer seat in, in a different part of the country close bracket <laughs> and i think that you know associations are going to be a little cynical of being uh, given the choice of a of an mp who they think perhaps should be fighting um their, their own seat, the seat they won in 2019. But I, th I think the, the other thing to touch on, and it's it's certainly the case in Labour as well, is that uh, Boris didn't have the bandwidth with Brexit to really concentrate on candidate selection in the way that Cameron and Osborne did in the run up to 2010, uh, in 2019. And so therefore he outsourced a lot of um, of selections, not, not really even to the candidates department at CCHQ, but a very tiny number of advisors in number 10 Downing Street. And I suspect something's happening very similarly with the people around Starmer now in order to block people who will be an electoral liability. And Katie, what kind of names are you expecting to put forward for these seats? 
So I think there could be a few familiar names if you think about figures who we expect to be on the candidate list. So, for example, David Frost has said that he has made the candidate list, though we don't know which past he's got. And I spoke to some in government who actually wondered why David Frost was on the candidates list um, in the sense of someone who seems to oppose nearly all measures um, by the current government, or at least is very vocal when it comes to uh, e-retained law, uh, when it comes to the Windsor framework. Um, and and therefore, for all the... I mean, let's see if he actually does get on many lists and get to that process. But it does suggest for all the criticism that um, this is being probably tightly controlled, there are still some opposing voices that, that are making it now maybe that it would just be too much of a headache not to have David Frost on that list um, David Frost is in the House of Lords if he goes uh, to join the House of Commons he had to change it someone said to me well he can basically do everything he would want to do anyway from the House of Lords the only thing you can't really do um, which you could do in the House of Commons is become party leader so I think that is one to watch I mean you could but Telly doesn't tend to work well particularly these days with the unelected chamber Figures such as Rupert Harrison, who was an aide under George Osborne. I think you were getting some Cameroons trying to come back. Sebastian Payne, a former Spectator employee, has confirmed this week that he is on the candidates list. Um, FT journalist now the head of Onward. Um, so perhaps some familiar faces might, might make it. But of course, we need to see where the associations stand on this because they have the final say. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Stuart. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. Mm-hmm.